If you've read through any of the Gospels before, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you know that there is a growing opposition in the ministry of Jesus, an opposition that culminates in a plot uh, and an illegal trial uh, and a crucifixion and a death. What's interesting, though, here in Mark is how early he lays that out. The Gospel of Mark has 16 chapters. Here we are in chapter 3, and all we've covered for the last five weeks is how controversial Jesus' ministry was and the growing conflict between him and the religious leaders of Israel. In fact, by the time we get to verse 6 here in chapter 4, the active plotting to put Jesus to death begins. And if you go back and you read um, chapter 2 into chapter 3, verse 6, you'll see that there's this pattern. In every place, we find Jesus going about doing his ministry, teaching and healing, uh, exorcisms uh, and compassionate behavior, Uh, And then you'll see it prompts uh, a reaction. And then through that reaction and Jesus' response, we come to understand who he is. And so it starts with a man who is uh, paralyzed, who is brought by his friends while Jesus is teaching in a household, lowered down through the ceiling. And as he's laying there, Jesus speaks to this paralyzed man and he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And quietly in the hearts of the Pharisees, the religious leaders who are watching, they go, that's blasphemous. Who can forgive but God alone? And Jesus demonstrates his authority to forgive by saying, what's easier, to forgive or to say to a man who is paralyzed, rise, take up your bed and walk, but so that you know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, and he heals the man and he walks out of there. We've seen over and over again these tensions rising between the religious leaders, and where it's been valuable for us is that it helps us to contrast uh, the ministry and life of Jesus, or the gospel, the good news of Christianity, and religion. And I mean religion in the broadest sense of uh, man-made systems of self-salvation. Now, what's really interesting, and as we'll see this morning, is that uh, Israel's religion, the one that the Pharisees adhere to, the same ones who stand against Jesus, the same ones who will eventually put Jesus to death by their plotting, uh, theirs is unique because they have taken God's law given by God through Moses to Israel and somehow still messed it all up, right? One of the things you learn from the history of Israel is that uh, the problem with human beings is not merely environment. Because Israel has every advantage. They have a God who has brought them out with a mighty hand, who they know personally, who has spoken and given them the law, who constantly and regularly provides guidance through the prophets, who provides a sacrificial system to cover up uh, and provide forgiveness for where they fall short, uh, prophecies of what he's going to do so that they know in front how this is all going to culminate in the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. And it comes, and for the most part, Almost entirely, Jesus is misunderstood, rejected, and resisted. 
That's what we see happening here. That's the problem with religion. And this final illustration helps us to see uh, that this problem, once again, is not an over there problem. It's not this people. It's not organized religion. It's a problem of the human heart. And so read with me here in chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Let's pray. Father, this bent in us that skews your truth and makes it falsehood, that takes what you have made to be life and makes it death, that reinterprets love and makes it hatred. God, that runs through our hearts, even for those of us who already know you and have received your free gift of salvation in Jesus. Lord, this is our predisposition. This is our normal setting. And I pray, Lord, as we re-encounter the living God who took on flesh and lived and died in our place, uh, that you would uh, squeeze out religion from our own hearts uh, and that we, through our relationship with you, uh, would be restored to your image this morning. I pray this in your name. Amen. The story is brief. It's very lacking in details. In fact, whereas you can read many places in the Gospels where Jesus heals and the healing is center place, that's not the case here. It's almost incidental to the focus of Mark's narrative. Now, that's not just because Jesus heals a lot of people and so Mark doesn't want to take time giving us the details again. But he's put this passage here to culminate, like I said, the conflict, conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. And that's where the focus of the story is. So the first thing I want you to recognize is that this plays out in the synagogue on the Sabbath. Okay? And so as we saw last week, Jesus and the Pharisees have already butted heads about the Sabbath. As Jesus and his disciples were ha uh, walking through a grain field, they were picking the heads of grain and rubbing it in their hands and eating as they went along, and the Pharisees challenged them on that because they were doing work on the Sabbath. They were reaping and winnowing and grinding, uh, all of which they saw as being uh, unlawful. And so Jesus points out that human need and Jesus himself transcend the Sabbath are greater than the Sabbath. And in, in doing so, they, he implies that they've missed everything because they've taken what's to be a God-given gift of rest and made it a terrible burden and labor. But notice, now they go, okay, here is the place. 
where we can accuse him. He's a lawbreaker. Here's the place where we can make a case against the popularity of Jesus. And the truth is, if you read the Old Testament, Sabbath breaking was punishable by death. Now, the problem is, Jesus isn't breaking the Sabbath. He's breaking all of the rules and regulations and interpretations and traditions of the Pharisees that they've built on top of these things. But the goal here for the Pharisees in our story is essentially a trap, and it won't be the last time. They want to catch Jesus red-handed, if you will. And so notice what happens here. He comes to the synagogue, which he has a habit of doing. Most likely this is in Capernaum. We find him in the synagogue on regular occasions. If it was the Sabbath, Jesus made a habit of going and gathering to hear the reading of God's word, to be with the people of God, just like we do as Christians. But notice as he gets there, verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. Now, it's not necessarily that they went to this man whose arm was somehow unusable and paralyzed and said, hey, why don't you come to church with us today? Why don't you sit right up front? But at the very least, they know he's there and they know what Jesus generally does in these situations. Okay? It's not necessarily that they've set this up, but they do see it as an opportunity Now, this shows how twisted their hearts are because what do they know about Jesus? One, that he is capable of healing. They're expecting him to heal, right? The plot doesn't work if Jesus can't make a difference in this man's life. Two, that he will see the need and do something about it. They know that Jesus is compassionate enough that even though this is something that could wait till Monday, he's going to do it today. Now, take that data for yourself. Imagine, put yourself in the place uh, of somebody in Jesus' day and age. Take those things that you know. That Jesus has proven himself powerful to heal and willing to heal. It's almost hard, isn't it, for us to wrap our heads around where the Pharisees are really at. How can they be so resistant? In fact, And here's my fear. I think when a lot of us read this story and we go, what character do we resonate with the story? Where do we find ourselves here? If each of us is in this story, which character are we? And the scary thing is, I think we resonate with Jesus. I think we put ourselves there because Jesus here does the right thing. We root for it. We we want to stand behind this. When Jesus is angry at their hardness of hearts, we're angry too. When he's grieved, by their lack of compassion, we're grieved too. But I would suggest to you that that's not Mark's goal. In fact, (laughs) the way that Mark tells the story, he doesn't set up a juxtaposition between the heroes, Jesus' disciples, and the villains, the wicked Pharisees. Over and over again, the disciples fail Jesus, misunderstand, misapply his words. There are two other characters that feature primarily in this story beside Jesus, and both of them are better candidates to find ourselves. The first is the man whose hand is withered. 
the reality of his life is one of inability. It's one of limitation. In fact, realize that the way that Jesus heals this man is he tells him to do something he cannot do. His arm hangs limp and stiff at his side, and Jesus draws attention to him, says, come up here in front of everybody. And then he says, stretch out your hand. The normal and natural response is, I can't. In fact, at first glance, if it's not Jesus speaking, if, if this man didn't know who Jesus was or what his rep- reputation was, it seems taunting. It seems mocking. And then there's the Pharisees, and they also have something stiff, something hard. But for them, it's their hearts. Now, here's the thing. What we need to understand is that this whole passage revolves around the concept of life and death. Right? What is the focal point of it? Look at Jesus' words. He, before he heals, speaks to the Pharisees because, remember, they are the ones that he is trying to teach. His ministry, as much as it's to the man here, that's secondary to his ministry here to the Pharisees. He's being provocative. He could have done it another time. He could have done it quietly in a corner. Instead, knowing that they're watching... He puts it right in front of them, and before he heals the man, he addresses them directly. Look at what he says. He says here in verse 4, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm, to save life or to kill? Good or evil? Save or destroy? That is the entire thematic world that this story lives in, and on a bunch of different layers. For one, just recognize here, Here is Jesus about to do good on the Sabbath, to heal. But by the end of the story, what do the Pharisees do on the Sabbath? Look again at verse uh, 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. How do they spend their Sabbath? Plotting the death of Jesus. But it's deeper than this. Okay. First off, recognize that we're talking about the tension of this story revolves around not the fact that Jesus heals, but that he would heal on the Sabbath, that he would work on a day of rest. Now, the thing we need to see, and uh, the thing we need to see this morning is, first off, this idea of the Sabbath is ingrained in the law of Israel, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a God-given thing, and that law in its attention was life and not death. That's the goal, okay? God's law reflects God's character. It is um, not something that was meant to be used to earn your way into life. It's more like a manual of life, okay? It says this is how life works, and the Sabbath is actually a good illustration of this. Jesus pointed out last week that it's not that man was made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. God didn't have this day of rest and go, okay, now let's make someone to burden them with this. Let's create someone to keep all these rules. Instead, God made man and then gifted him the Sabbath, and with the Sabbath, the rest of the laws of Israel, laws that's goals and intention were life. In fact, what does the Sabbath point to? 
If you read the Ten Commandments, where we find the command for the Sabbath, in Deuteronomy and Exodus, it's rooted in two places. Remembering God's creation, for God rested on the seventh day, and remembering God as Redeemer, for I have brought you out of the slavery of Egypt. I have set you free. The Sabbath was an expression of creation, abundance, life, the giving of life, and an expression of redemption, of freedom. And that was true of all of Israel's law. It was to bring life and freedom. It was to promote flourishing. Now, what's amazing here is that the Pharisees have come to an understanding of that self-same law that moves against that. In fact, here's what the rabbis taught about uh, healing practices on the Sabbath. It was okay to heal if it was necessary for life. Okay? If you're going to bleed out, bandaging is okay. In fact, the, the rabbis made a habit of illustrating not in the big but in the small. And so this is what they suggest. If you cut your finger, it's totally okay to wrap it in a band-aid to staunch the bleeding. But you can't use any ointment that would promote healing. You can stay danger and death, but you can't move towards healing. In the same way, broadly, like I said, they had taken what was to be a gift, a day of rest, and made it uh, a toil to keep, a work that had to be done and maintained that took lots of focus and lots of effort. We see this with Israel as a whole. Okay. So God sets up fasting. He says, this is something that you can do. But Isaiah challenges them he says, you wonder why God doesn't receive your fast. And he says, isn't the fast that I have appointed, God says, to give your bread to the hungry and to set free the prisoner, to promote and bring about justice? Okay. Now, the idea there is, uh, is that the, the purpose of God's law was greater than just something to keep as an individual. We see the same thing with sacrifices. Jesus tells these same people on a later occasion, he says, go and learn what is said. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. So they took the law and they elevated the sacrificial system and they made it focal point and then they condemned those who couldn't afford sacrifices. They, uh, they, did, not, um, they did not love or take care of the poor. In fact, and this runs through the same story here, the primary complaint of Israel that God makes from Exodus with the golden calf all the way through the Old Testament is their hardness of heart. And so here, Jesus makes a juxtaposition, and I want you to notice there's no answer C. What does he say again? He says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? What option does he not leave? One of inactivity. He, he only gives two options. Either you're promoting life or you're bringing about damage. In fact, I think this is one of the problems we generally have with our own assessment of our behavior is that we weigh it in what we do or what we shouldn't do that we don't do, instead of recognizing how often it involves what we should and could do and leave undone. Right? 
he criticizes the Pharisees, not here because they have let this man sit there unhealed, because they can't really do anything about that, can they? But they are resistant against Jesus, who in his ability can bring about a freedom from suffering. There's another occasion where a woman comes into a synagogue service just like this, and her spine is so distorted that she's bent over and can only look at the ground and has been that way for decades. And Jesus heals her, and she stands upright. And the, the uh, leader of the synagogue gets everybody's attention, and he says, there are six days to be healed on. Come any of the other days, just not this day. And Jesus challenges them on the same grounds. And he says, what could be more appropriate to the Sabbath that I have, than the fact that I have set this woman who has been bound by the devil for 40 years free? What could be a truer version of fasting? Fasting because we're such great people or fasting because we're sharing our food with those who need it? Right? They had missed the intention of the law. And one of the things Jesus does in his ministry is get us back to the core, the heart. He gives us the right and proper interpretation of the law. If you read the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard that it was said. And he takes the principles of the law and he says, but I say to you, and he deepens them, he develops them, he reorients them, he focuses them, he centers them in. And the thing is here, Jesus tells us that uh, not only was the law meant for life, but communally. And that's what's so ironic here. Recognize that when Jesus says good and evil, or good and harm, when he says save and kill, he's echoing the law. Really quickly, turn back to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. The book of Deuteronomy is right before Israel enters into the promised land, and it's right before Moses dies. It's his final sermon to the people who were going to go into the land without Moses. And so in it, he reviews the covenant God has made with Israel, which includes the law, and this is his conclusion. This is the climax, okay? And so notice what he says here. In verse 15, remember again that what he's just set before them is the law. He's reviewed God's commandments. And notice what he says in verse 15. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Sound familiar? Now, recognize here, Moses isn't just saying that law leads to life and good and it uh, leads away from death and evil. He's also talking about consequence. Notice what it says next. Verse 16, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your hearts turn away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. Okay? What I'm telling you here is that when Jesus touches on this, he's not just reminding them of the intent of the law, but the danger of not keeping it. And in actuality, the Pharisees are well acquainted with this. Okay. Why is the Sabbath law so serious to them? 
because the entire law is so serious because the consequences, and once again, not just on the individual salvation sense, but on the fate of Israel as a nation, hangs in the balance with them keeping the covenant or not keeping it. In fact, remember here in the first century, Israel knows this firsthand because 400 years prior to the life of Jesus, God finally has enough. His patience runs out. And because they do not do what Moses told them to do here, they end up being booted out of the land, sold into slavery under Babylon, and for 70 years live under the thumb of another ruler. These are direct concerns to the Pharisees. And here's where the irony comes in. Because their life hangs in the balance they fall into interpretation of the law that leads to death for others. Do you see the correlation there? I know it's kind of a leap, but here's here's what I'm saying. Look at the Pharisees here. They are so intent on the keeping of the law because it's life and death, they end up enforcing a law that is only death. Moves in the wrong direction. And I will tell you honestly and frankly this morning, that is not a first century Jewish Pharisee problem. That is the problem with the human heart. And so they take the sacrificial system and they reject and neglect mercy. And they embrace fasting and they let the hungry go hungry. And here, they promote a version of Sabbath that leaves people in bondage, leaves them unhealed, and sometimes moves in the other direction. As I pointed last week, out last week, it was part of the law that required that anyone who was poor was allowed to eat as they moved along through another person's grain field. In fact, it went further than that. They were not to reap all the way up to the corners of the grain field, but to leave part of their crop left untouched so that any who didn't have enough to eat and didn't have their own land could come and work that land and take it home for themselves. But here, they jump out and, although, uh, and they make the Sabbath a restriction to that. Here's the thing. We all live by a law. We all do. But when we move away from God, both as lawgiver and law interpreter, inherently, there's something about human nature that brings death instead of life. And sometimes that's a lack of wisdom. And so we talk as if we're promoting freedom, and with that freedom comes a bunch of death, comes a bunch of destruction. Or we talk, or we strive, or we set up a rule to live by for ourselves, and because of that we feel that we are deserving of life, but we leave the greater things undone. That was where the Pharisees got to. But that's not all of the story. There's another layer here that I think is tremendously interesting, which is, in one sense, we could say from the story this morning, Jesus came to bring life. And that's totally true. It is that life promotion that leads to the plotting of his death. And I want to remind you this morning that it's not just the stuffy old Pharisees that eventually condemn Christ to the cross. That it's the crowds that gather in the patio before Pilate and call crucify him. 
the thing is, there's a deeper truth even than that. It is an amazing level of hypocrisy that the Pharisees can be so concerned because Jesus breaks the Sabbath to bring life when they don't even notice they break it to promote death, to plot death. But there's a deeper truth here. Jesus didn't come just as a healer. He didn't come just as a life giver. He didn't come to reorient their understanding of the law as a teacher. He came to die. Jesus' ministry is not just a ministry of life, but a ministry of death. Jesus says, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down willingly. It's not just that he's some vigilante who's going to do the right thing even though it will cost him his life. Jesus is not just some freedom fighter or some sort of um, liberal revolutionary who's trying to promote a better way. He constantly and regularly in his ministry talks about coming to die. In fact, I want you to notice this. Look at his response. Look at his response here to the Pharisees again in chapter 3, verse uh, 5. So he asks them this question. Which is the right interpretation of the Sabbath? To bring life or to promote death? To bring good or promote evil? And he looked at them, verse 5, with anger and grieved their hardness of heart. His response to their righteousness. And let me tell you what Paul tells us about this self-same Jesus Christ. That God has appointed a single man to judge the living and the dead. This is him. Paul tells us in another place that we will all confess before this Jesus that he will sit as judge over all life. How does Jesus feel about their righteousness? How does he feel about their religion? How does he feel about the rigidity of their keeping it? Angry and grieved. And the reason is because of the things they've left undone. They're so careful through religious self-preservation to keep the rules to make sure their eternal destiny is not on the line, but they have no care, no concern for those around them. But I want you to notice here, he's not just angry, he's grieved. Now, I don't know if you have a problem with Jesus being angry. I know that doesn't always fit uh, the image of how we sometimes think about Jesus. Uh, but in Mark's gospel, he's angry quite a lot. We're going to see it quite a lot. I want you to notice who he's not angry at. Okay? He's been gathering with sinners and tax collectors, with prostitutes and these things. We see no anger there. But over and over again, it's with the religious leaders, and almost always it's instigated because their religion gets in the way of life. So I'll give you another place. The place where we see Jesus the most angry in all of the Gospels. He comes into the temple in Jerusalem, and the outer area of the temple is known as the Court of the Gentiles. And it's called that because it's the only place where a non-Jewish person could enter into the temple. Any further was death. And this is a posted sign type situation. But the court of the Gentiles had become a marketplace where the Jews could come and buy already acceptable sacrifices. 
If you read in the Old Testament, the sacrifices had to be without spot, without blemish, without bruise, without birthmark, right? All of the limbs had to be healthy, no broken bones. There's a bunch of requirements. And so they started a market where they had pre-approved sacrifices to improve the process. And they had set up money changers because in the temple, you could only pay with the temple shekel, okay? Not just something you'd carry around with you. And so what this means is the court of Gentiles had become this marketplace where people were profiting on the religious practices of those around them. And this was especially harmful to Gentiles. So Jesus comes and he sees it for what it is, effectively uh, implicit racism. He drives them out of the temple and this is what he says. He says, did not my father make this a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of thieves. And he's so angry, he sits down, he builds a whip, and he drives them out with force. Jesus is angry about sin. And that's not hatred, it's love. Because sin brings death, not just in our life, but in the lives of those around us. And that includes, that includes our inactivity in the midst of suffering. It includes our inactivity in promoting and bringing about justice. It includes uh, so much more than some righteous standard that we set up when we say, I keep to the T. But he's also grieved. And that's an amazing thing. Human beings, especially in this day and age where we've lost something emotionally, we're so emotionally narrow. We can do one thing at a time. Do we know what it's like to be angry and grieved? Do we know what it's like to both be so angry about the consequences of sin without losing compassion for the sinner? That's where Jesus is at here. And it says specifically, he's grieved by their hardness of heart. That, like I said, is the single most used prophet-spoken uh, prophet condemnation of Israel throughout time. It is the problem with the human condition. He looks at it and he sees that it's not just this man over here who needs healing. It's these men over here. It's not just this man whose arm is stiff and unusable. Here are hearts that are stiff and unreceptive and unusable. And the only difference is this man knows his condition and wants to be healed, and this man is completely oblivious. Here's why I bring this all out, because I want you to recognize that the ones that Jesus is so angry at here, the ones who have the hard hearts, the ones he's so grieved about, the ones who will put him to death, these are the ones that Jesus came to die for. The problem that Israel found with the law is that they saw it as a means of righteousness, not a vision of righteousness. They saw it as a means of righteousness. And something about our human hearts takes those means and makes them a means of death. And I want you to notice, it's not just because Jesus and the Pharisees have different standards. Here they are plotting the death of an innocent man. There's no getting around the evil of what they do here, but do they see themselves as evil? Not at all. When we determine our deservation of life, when we come to God with our record and we say, this is enough, we forget the hardness of heart. 
We don't understand how blind we really are. We don't understand how actually one of the greatest limits to fulfilling the law, ironically, is our obsession to fulfill it. I'll give you another example. Jesus tells a parable about a man who on the road to Jericho is beaten and robbed and left for dead. And a Pharisee comes and he sees this man laying on the, on the road and he steps to the other side and passes him by. You need to recognize this morning that's not just a lack of compassion. That is a religious commitment. Because he doesn't know if that man is alive or dead. And if he's dead, just being there, just touching him, just checking his pulse, puts him in a place of being unclean, ritually. And he's going to have to go through the process of becoming clean again. It makes him an outsider. It puts him away. He has to go through these things, and so he passes on the other side of the street. It's a little bit harder to recognize where we do that in our own lives because of this hardness of heart. But I promise you, we do. The worst thing we can do to promote life is keep our rules. The Bible, and specifically Jesus, sums up the entire law in two statements. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Oftentimes, our rule-keeping, our religion, our righteousness is really just a form of self-love. We want the best for us. And in doing so, we actually end up failing to keep even our own law. Here's the thing, though. Jesus comes and he dies and he freely gives life. The gospel says that Jesus provides his own righteousness. He takes, in the words of Jeremiah, our hearts of stone and he replaces them with a heart of flesh. He doesn't just give us a perfect record because Jesus does all the things that please the Father and lived a perfect life of love without a single missed opportunity, without a single misstep of disobedience, always tempted and yet without sin, the author of Hebrews says. And he gives us that righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. He takes our consequence and gives us his consequence. But it's more than that. He also instills in us that essence of life. See, if you receive the life that Jesus offers, if he comes to give life and you take it in, it actually frees you up to promote life. That's why Paul says that the only ethic that matters after Jesus comes is love. Because love fulfills the law. But I promise you this, as long as you are trying to take care of yourself, as long as your own future is subject to your behavior, as long as your own heart is so self-righteous that it's hard and can't see straight, it doesn't work. The idea of Jesus' coming and dying for us is not merely... Look, I know you don't measure up. I'll take care of that because I love you so much. It actually takes care of the bentness of the human heart. It does something. When we receive life fully and freely at the cost of another, it frees us up to be life makers and life creators. It does it in a few ways. One, because we have the intent of the law. And so we understand what promotes life. 
Listen, I know for all of us, there's things we read in the Bible and we go, I don't understand that. That makes no ethical sense to me. Have you ever taken the time, have you ever taken the time to go, maybe, maybe God is God and I'm not. Maybe there's short-sightedness here. We need the intent, but we also need the justification. We need the fulfillment. We need the freedom to pursue life knowing that our shortcomings are taken care of. And we need the security so that we no longer have to seek to preserve ourselves through whatever religious means is uh, necessary. We don't need to be right because we've been made righteous. We don't need to impress God because while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that frees us up to fulfill the law. Not perfectly. You need Jesus today just as much as you needed him yesterday. But it changes the trajectory. It moves from this limited presentation that says, I must do these rules to live. And it says, these rules lead to life. It changes your view of God from uh, some sort of a... um, arbitrary, vindictive lawmaker that just wants to make you jump through hoops to a loving father who's showing you the way to life. Jesus comes bringing life, not death. But our own way leads to death. Let's look at verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. That's striking in and of itself, and I'll tell you why. The Herodians are those who promoted the rule of the family of the Herods. Okay? Herod the Great, Herod Antipas, Herod the Tetrarch, this family. The Pharisees and the Herodians are not playing for the same team. Okay? The Herodian family was not Jewish. Uh, they... Uh, took the high priest office and just gave it to the highest bidder. When the Pharisees labeled themselves Pharisees, which means to be separate from, this is part of what they're trying to separate themselves from. But the hardness of heart makes strange bedfellows. And they go, we're not going to be able to put him to death without some help. We should talk to the Herodians. We should go to those in power who we generally critique and criticize and see as outsiders and make uh, make them our friends, work together on this issue. But we will notice as we go through the Gospel of Mark that this is the beginning of the end. The next thing that happens is that they begin to harden their hearts even further and attribute the miracles that Jesus is doing to demonic powers. Jesus warns them. He warns them about their stubborn resistance, about their hardness of heart. Here's the thing. All human hearts are hard, and all human hearts are hardening. What Jesus comes and he offers in the gospel is the equivalent of stretch out your hand. It's soften your heart. Just like that man who stands there with the paralyzed arm on his side, you can't do it. You can't. There is something so wrong with you that Jesus had to come and die in your place to fix it. Had to. 
But we need to recognize the danger of resisting God's grace. That if you prefer to take care of it yourself, to stand on your own interpretation, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, if you reject that offer, either because you think you don't need it or because you know you don't deserve it, What you say is, I want my record to stand. I want the glory for my own righteousness. Whatever you do, you need to recognize that's not a decision of inactivity. It's a very active one. It is a stance of resistance. This is why the healing of that man is so helpful. With me this morning, just very quickly, go through the mental process. Let's put ourselves in different shoes, not of the Pharisees, but of the man who received healing. What is it like in that five-second moment where he has an invitation to do what he cannot do? I have no idea. We're not always given an insight into what's going on in the hearts and minds of those who Jesus heals and calls to do the impossible. But what he does is faith. He doesn't believe that he can reach out his arm, but he does believe Jesus can heal. For us this morning, the goal here is not to believe that you can get it right next time, that you can finally fix it, that you're ready to just get it right. It's to believe that Jesus changes hearts. It's to believe that what God uh, has done in Jesus Christ is so powerful it can even save someone like you. The gift that God offers in Jesus Christ is free, but it has to be received. If you're not a Christian this morning, I would encourage you with bad news and good news. And the bad news is your sins are so serious, so cultivating death in your life, in the people around you, in the world that God has made that Jesus had to come and die for them. The crucifixion is a horrible thing and a necessary thing. But I would encourage you in the good news as well that Jesus loves you so much, he's angry and he's grieved, that he freely and willingly came and paid that price, took all of that upon himself and then offered you something better. When we talk about what Christianity is, when we talk about what the gospel is, that's what it is. It's not a way of life. It's Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. It's not merely a definition of righteousness because Christ is our righteousness. But when you receive this, it doesn't make you less compassionate, but more. It doesn't make you less loving, but more. Now, just like the Jews, all of us, Christian or non, know that that's not always the case in the church. Know that we see plenty of people who take the name of Christ and it looks a lot like the Pharisees. It's self-righteous. It's uncompassionate. It's distant and offstandish. But that shouldn't surprise us. That's all humans. But what God has offered us in Jesus Christ does lead to something else. 
He brings life, not death. Let's pray. Father, I honestly believe that if we leave this text as a place to applaud Jesus as a defender of the weak, or as a hero who, like us, is compassionate, then we make a severe misstep. Instead, Lord, our hearts are hard and blind like the Pharisees. We feel like we can do no wrong. And yet when Jesus puts it so starkly and says, anytime we don't pursue life, we let death win. Anytime we don't save, we kill. It reevaluates the standard for us. We're more like the man with the withered hand who says, I can't do what needs to be done. I am not whole. I am broken. And recognizes in Jesus Christ not just the ability to heal, but the one who bore death on our behalf the one who took upon his own shoulders everything that we deserve, every shortcoming, every stubborn resistance, every hateful act. And despite that, willingly and freely loved us and endured that and offers us something better. And says to each of us this morning, stretch out your hand. God, I want to pray specifically for the Christians in our church this morning. I pray that any shadow of religiosity that would keep us from compassion, that would hinder our ability to love you and to love those who are made in your image, I pray that we would see it for what it is, Lord, an attempt to save ourselves. I pray, Lord, that we would be so confident in your salvation and in your free gift of righteousness that we would seek to love. And we just recognize wherever that hardness is, where we can see it and where we can't, we just can't do this. Save us again. Save us afresh. Save us deeper and fuller. Continue the work that you have begun in us this morning. Uproot the brokenness of the human heart, the selfishness of the human soul. And fill it with your love, and I pray that that love would overflow, that the love of Christ would compel us. We lift up all these things, Lord, and ask you to do them in the name of Jesus Christ, who came to heal and came to die so that we might live. Amen. As we respond this morning, we're going to continue to sing and to worship the Lord together. And if you're a Christian, feel free to come.